welcome to Afrofiles. I'm Charlotte Bednarski. In this episode, we take a deep dive into apartheid-era South Africa. Two of the most famous figures implicated in the freedom struggle, Nelson Mandela and Winnie Madikazela Mandela, embodied distinct and contrasting visions of a post-apartheid future. To learn more, I sat down with South African scholar and writer Johnny Steinberg. He has written extensively on post-apartheid South Africa and the transition to democracy, and his prize-winning literature offers insight into the everyday lives of people navigating changing institutions and seeking justice. Dr. Steinberg's next book, entitled Nelson and Winnie, A Portrait of a Marriage, will be published in 2023. In today's episode, we talk about economic inequality, competing visions of justice, and the politics of performance and enchantment. Thanks for listening. I wanted to open just with something really general. So if you could just tell us why you've decided in your new book to focus on Nelson and Winnie as a couple and on their marriage specifically. I, I, I chose to focus on their marriage um, because of its uniqueness in, in 20th century history. The, uh, a self-conscious decision was taken by the organization, the ANC and the, anti, the global anti-apartheid movement and they themselves um, to construct their marriage as a vehicle through which to campaign against apartheid. Um, and in the whole global history of decolonization, that was pretty much unique. Almost everywhere else in the decolonized world, um, it was men who took office, black and brown men across the globe who took office and did so as patriarchs with their wives more or less in the background. It's obviously a big sweep of history. But, but here is the one moment in the history of, of anti-colonial struggles where a couple was put in the shop window, a marriage was put in the shop window, a, a silenced prisoner and his banished wife, um, both beautiful, charismatic, eloquent. Um, and, and, and so it was something new, and I wanted to explore that. And then if we could back up a minute, I guess, to the beginning of Winnie's time in the city and her early life, specifically her move to Johannesburg. Could you tell us a bit about um, that period in her life? Uh, so, so Winnie grew up in the countryside and, and was nearly 17 when she came to Johannesburg. Just a bit about her rural background. She, she was a, her family was a member of the Mpondo aristocracy, uh, uh, one of the 12 also speaking aristocracies conquered by the British in the 19th century. So she came from, a, from an elite pedigree and, and went to elite mission schools. She was very much groomed um, to be highly educated and a leader. Um, but I, I, I think it's safe to say that she'd been pushing very hard against the limitations imposed on women from very, very early. You know, it was meant to be a son in the family that swords, and it ended up being a woman. It ended up being Winnie through her sheer charisma and force. And when she came to Johannesburg, a similar story. She, you know, on the one hand, she entered a, an elite educational institution. She was training to be a social worker. It was a, about the most um, revered role that a Black woman could play at the time. Uh, but she very quickly understood that she was hitting a ceiling as a woman. And in a, a very inventive way, she understood that she was beautiful and charismatic and seductive and that using what she looked like before in front of a camera 
um, the clothes she wore could be rolled into her education and her intelligence. And she really manufactured a, a path to, uh, to political fame um, all of her own. It was quite original um, that no woman before her had done in quite the same way. And then at this same time, was what was Nelson doing and how did it come about that Winnie and Nelson um, met in Johannesburg and um, saw each other? Um, was Nelson's background similar to Winnie's in the sense that he also came from a rural background and then moved? They had very similar backgrounds. He came from one of the other 12, also speaking, aristocracies. Um, you know, he was nearly two decades older than her. So by the time she arrived in Johannesburg, he was already pretty famous. He was one of only 60 black lawyers in South Africa. He was also uh, a political leader by then, not the leader yet of the ANC, but, but prominent. Um, he was also a very flamboyant, um, notoriously flirtatious man. Um, his, his marriage was in deep trouble and that was widely known. Uh, they met because elite Africans in Johannesburg met one another. They, they were in very similar circles. And although one wouldn't want to read things backwards and say it was inevitable, you know, one, one can say in retrospect that they were perfect for one another. This was a, a man hitting 40 who had a taste for younger women. It was a young woman who was very ambitious and attracted to men who exercised power. Um, they were both glamorous. They were both beautiful. They both, you know, the moment they got together, Johannesburg's black press was very interested in taking pictures of them and writing about them. Um, they, they caused a stir on the scene from, from the very beginning. They, I think in ways they didn't quite understand by the, you know, at that stage it was still intuitive, but they understood that the combination of celebrity and political activism was very powerful. And not too long after they are together and they get married, Nelson is eventually taken away to prison. And I wanted to talk a bit about that because it's at this point that their paths really start to diverge in some interesting ways. So I guess we could start with Nelson's role on Robin Island. Um, there's so much literature about this, letters that he himself has written, just tons of them. So if you could perhaps speak to what Nelson learned on Robin Island, how he learned it, um, and how these experiences, this long experience of imprisonment, um, might have shaped his political subjectivities um, and style of negotiation even. You know, it's a difficult one because his, his time in Robin Island is so mythologized and, and Robin Island itself is so mythologized. And I'm quite skeptical of the standard story that's told. You know, the standard story is that in prison, he, he arrived in prison as quite a, a wild, slightly reckless man. Um, and prison taught him really to be a stoic, to train his emotions, to train his desires, um, uh, to reflect. And, and the myth goes that part of those reflections were, were understanding of political tolerance and understanding of different views and understanding that a, a, quite a divisive uh, plurality of liberation movement figures were locked up together and he needed to find a mode of everybody understanding one another and working things out together. And the myth is that that island became a microcosm for what he did later of negotiating a compromise to his country's great impending civil war. But I think that if you look at who was becoming before he went to prison, he was already mainly there. You know, in his famous speech from the from the dock, 
1964, um, he says that his country is on the way to war and he needs to stop it. Um, and the sort of violence he's going to exercise is a very controlled violence and a substitute for mass violence. So, so I think that he's actually already formed by the time he goes to prison. During this time as well, Winnie is caught up in the violence of the apartheid system and she experiences a period of imprisonment and torture and even banishment. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how these experiences might have shaped her understanding of the freedom struggle or rather what experiences might have been most formative in her understanding of how apartheid might end. So, I, I, I mean, the, the, her, the degree to which the apartheid state made her suffer is almost unbelievable. Uh, and the energy with which they kept meeting out suffering on her is extraordinary. They first banned her. She wasn't allowed to be with more than one person at a time for periods of years. Um, they hounded her children out of school. They hounded her out of every job she ever had to try and stop her from earning a living. Um, and eventually in 1969, they arrested her and threw her in jail for 17 months. Um, she was tortured during that time. She spent five days without being able to sleep, being interrogated, getting ill. Uh, she was then thrown into solitary confinement for many months. When she came out of prison, she used that experience, I, I guess, as a kind of a, a metaphor um, for the struggle against apartheid in general. Uh, she was tortured by a man called Swanepoel, and she'd, she'd reference her fight with Swanepoel, what was going on between them in the most intimate terms. Uh, she said that he was a man who got inside her. He, she imbibed his hatred and learned to hate him back, and that their struggle was to the death. Uh, and through that, she, that story bled into a general story. And she said, this, this, the struggle in South Africa is to the death. It has to be violent. It has to be insurrectionary. Again, I'm skeptical that it was her experience of prison that made her think that way. I think that she interpreted her prison experience that way because she already believed that, the, that there had to be a violent revolution in South Africa. I think there are strong traces of her thinking that early. I, I think common to both of them is that they they were real performers. And I don't mean that in a cynical way. I mean that in that they were both genius political performers and they used their experiences as raw material, as, as, as symbols, as metaphors. And it isn't surprising that they both used the experiences of prison, such extreme experiences um, as, as, as metaphors that they projected onto the world. Absolutely. Another, I guess, uh, striking moment in, Winnie's kind of life history is this time when she's banished. And you talk about um, the genius that Winnie and Nelson have when it comes to performing and using the media. Um, could you speak to uh, Winnie's experience in when she was banished and how she interacted with the media at that time? Um, I'm aware that the, a lot of the leadership of the ANC was either in exile or in prison. And at this time, Winnie kind of stepped up and was pursuing um, leading in a way um, the ANC in exile. And I was wondering if you could speak about that. Well, in, in 1977, um, in, in May, the police arrived at her home in Soweto unannounced, um, put her and her daughter in a truck, drove them to a remote village in the countryside, dumped them there, um, and showed her a, a, a banishment order saying that she was banished to that town um, and could not leave. Uh, it was very remote. She didn't speak the language people spoke there, and she ended up staying for eight years. Now, 
I found a fascinating note in the archive where the, the minister of law and order, it was called at the time, was advised by an advisor not to do that. They said, you're making a martyr of her and she knows how to use martyrdom. And, and that note turned out to be absolutely prescient because the idea of this woman banished to the middle of nowhere was such a powerful story. And she used it to wonderful, wonderful effect. The international press uh, rushed to this town, Brantford. Um, she broke petty apartheid laws. Uh, she, you know, she strutted around that town um, as a powerful, beautiful black woman in her banishment, in her exile, she became a global figure. Um, and the words she used uh, in her banishment were so simple, but so powerful. At a time when the ANC was banned, she said, I am the wife of the ANC's leader. I am a representative of the organization. Nobody else in the country could do that. And so she used her banishment to incredibly powerful effect. You know, 1977 was a time when the ANC was struggling with its image. Um, she helped uh, revive it. Uh, she helped bring it back to international attention. And then soon after that, in the late 1970s and into the 1980s, there were some pretty monumental shifts taking place both globally and in South Africa in general, in a way the tides were really changing. And I wanted to ask you about some of these larger global dynamics that were putting pressure on, at the time, the apartheid regime, and also um, the start of secret talks with Nelson and the apartheid regime and um, the origins of, of these now infamous or famous talks? Well, in, in, in 1984, a national uprising in South Africa began, uh, a, a real nationwide insurrection that lasted for two years. And the ANC managed to capitalize on that insurrection in very sophisticated and interesting ways. Um, on the one hand, they were very out of touch with what was happening in the country. On, on the other, the fact that they had an exiled army, the fact that they were leading an armed struggle uh, became symbolically so important for the youths who were driving the insurrection. And, and they did so in the name of the ANC, even though the ANC was actually organizationally barely present. Um, and that was a, a real moment where the ANC stamped its hegemony on, on, on black South Africa. And at the same time, it was able to project itself globally um, not as an insurrectionary force, but as a force of reason, as, as the representative of Black South Africa that could negotiate a transition away from apartheid. So the ANC did incredibly well in, in the 1980s. Um, as far as these secret talks are concerned, I think by the mid to late 1980s, both sides, the apartheid regime and the ANC, pretty much understood, um, well, I think the apartheid regime understood that they had to be major change. The world was turning against it. The ANC or most of the ANC understood that a, a violently toppling the regime was not an option. It was simply militarily too powerful. And both sides were desperate to end the stalemate and, and did various things to try and uh, get the upper hand in, in, in what was going to be an inevitable negotiation process. Um, Mandela absolutely believed that it was either going to be negotiations or civil war. Um, and he put out uh, messages to the regime saying that he wanted to talk. And secret talks began. Um, he made absolutely clear that he wasn't negotiating, but he would like to broker a, a deal between the apartheid government and the ANC. And while that was happening, all sorts of other talks began. Um, senior ANC figures in exile began secret, secretly talking to South African intelligence officers 
um, in, in direct and indirect ways. And by late 1989, it was really pretty clear to both sides that some sort of negotiations were going to begin. Um, F.W. de Klerk, South Africa's president, took the initiative in February 1990, unilaterally unbanned ANC um, and freed Mandela, and, and that next phase began. That's actually an important moment I wanted to talk about as well, this moment when Nelson is freed. Um, I understand that there was uh, quite a lot of planning that went into the first day that he was able to walk out um, of this house that he was being imprisoned in, and there was a bit of a um, situation with getting Winnie to arrive. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to, I guess, um, some of the dynamics surrounding their reunion. So he was meant to be released at 10 in the morning and by lunchtime, she was nowhere to be seen. Um, she eventually arrived in the mid afternoon. And I think that that was perhaps just indicative of how ambivalent she felt about the whole business. Um, in such complicated ways and for so many reasons. On the one hand, she understood by then that in a way her husband was her political opponent, that, that the moderate negotiated transition to democracy that he wanted, she absolutely did not. Um, whether ambivalence came from being a woman who had been single and free for a long time, and was now going to be the wife of a patriarch again, you know, one who she was expected to obey politically when she didn't want to. So I think that her lateness was, was, was symptomatic of, I mean, it was an enormous day in both of their lives and, and both must have felt, what both felt must have been complex, but I think that she was feeling profoundly ambivalent um, and, and, and hence she didn't arrive until the last moment. The video of them walking out of this household is really, um, it's, you can feel the energy even watching the video from years ago. I mean, it's just palpable. The people are so excited to see their leader free and walking free. And um, I think this brings out this, um, this term of Madiba magic. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to um, the politics of enchantment or as Pozel calls it, Madiba magic. No, it's, it's very hard to describe because um, it is a kind of a magic. He, he was more than a leader when he stepped out of jail. He was a myth. No, nobody had seen him for 27 years. Nobody knew what he looked like. He was at that moment probably the most famous human being in the world. Um, the symbolic freight he carried was enormous. He represented freedom for Black South Africa, but freedom in general. He, it was the last moment in, in, in decolonization since the beginning of European imperialism 500 years earlier. Um, and so there was a sense in which the person who worked out or what the person who walked out of prison radiated wasn't quite human. Um, and, and personally, just being in a room that he walked into or being in a huge crowd when he appeared, what would happen in that crowd was uh, electric and extraordinary. People, you know, out of body experiences, very, very strange. Um, and yet in reality, he obviously was just a human being and a flawed human being. But I think that he, I think that he understood that he had become a myth and wanted to use it um, and wanted to use it as a, you know, to bridge an impossible gulf between a unequal violent racist society and a new one. Um, and looking back now, all these years later, I think there's an understandable critique developing that what he did was mesmerize people. 
Um, you know, it was a compromised, negotiated settlement. It wasn't full-blooded freedom, and yet he painted it as full-blooded freedom and used his own mythology to paint it such. Um, so I think at the time, whether South Africa would have descended into civil war without him, without that mythological figure, is a counterfactual which is impossible to know, but it's quite plausible that it would have happened. Um, you know, young people now in retrospect don't have much tolerance for that idea. Um, you know, they, they wonder whether their parents were not um, sold down the river, um, or at least that the transition from apartheid was not what's, uh, what it was painted to be. Right, let's, I guess, dig into that a bit more. At the time that Nelson became president and the ANC came into power, what were some of the key points on the ANC's agenda? Um, and how did they go about realizing those objectives um, at this time? And more specifically, um, what were some of the biggest shortcomings of this, this first, these first couple of years after the, tr the transition? Well, to, to start with the successes of the transition, you know, when, when, when the National Party unbanned the ANC and freed Mandela, they had every intention of staying in power. Uh, they thought they could drag out the transition for 10 years, by which time the ANC would be dented and ordinary, Mandela would have lost his mythology. De Klerk believed that with an, with an alliance of conservative Black people, he would win the first democratic election. They also wanted a constitution that wasn't majoritarian, which had an upper chamber in which racial groups were represented. They lost all of that. There was a, a, a majoritarian constitution. The ANC was voted into power. And in that sense, um, ANC won. The constitution itself was a very, very good one. It wrote in a range of socioeconomic rights, which said that socioeconomic redistribution and transformation were constitutional imperatives. Um, so in that sense, it was a... It was a great victory. Um, on the other hand, um, white people were essentially assured that they would keep their privileges and that not too much would change. The NC also came to power at a very much understanding that South Africa was a peripheral country in a, in a, in a very much bigger global neoliberal order and believed that it had to play by global rules, how to play by Washington consensus rules, um, if it was going to be okay, if it was going to attract investments, if it was, if economy was going to grow. Um, and for at least for the first five or six years played by those rules and was very, very disappointed. Uh, foreign investment did not come in. Um, unemployment did not go down. Um, and so I think you can say in those first years, it took a gamble and that gamble didn't work out as its uh, architects had hoped. So you had talked about this generational kind of um, tension or frustration with some of the younger South Africans today, looking back on this legacy of a negotiated settlement and wondering what else could have been done and if this is really all that the settlement really could have achieved if more could have been done. Um, I wonder if you could speak to, um, I guess, the legacy or the memory of both Winnie and Nelson today um, how they're remembered and how their memory is invoked? So, you know, I, I'd say that for the first perhaps 20 years after his release, um, Nelson Mandela remained wildly popular um, among most people. Um, 
by the time he died, which was 23 years after his release, um, particularly young people were beginning to question um, his status, his legacy. It had been, you know, a generation had passed since the end of apartheid. Um, inequality in South Africa remained very, very sharp, uh, a great deal of poverty. The racial dimensions of inequality and poverty were just absolutely stark. And, you know, I, so much of the, the luster and the magic of the transition was now over. Um, and people were wondering why so little had changed, um, what that had to do with the settlement that was negotiated. I think people were also incredibly skeptical of the fact that white people liked Mandela so much and wondered why. Um, he very soon became seen as, as somebody who protected white people um, uh, from a more thoroughgoing transition. Um, that's putting it sharply, but but more and more from the moment of his death onwards, I think that many young black South Africans felt that way. And that coincided, not coincidentally, with a, with a resurrection of his former wife. Um, you know, through much of the 1990s, she was seen as the dark side of the struggle against apartheid, as the part that went wrong, the part that was uncontrolled, that was violent. In retrospect, many young people began to wonder whether she hadn't been suppressed precisely because she was radical, uh, precisely because she may have embodied a, 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 a very different transition. Um, and she was really resurrected as a symbol of what might have been. Um, and more than that, as a symbol of a brave and independent woman, um, as a woman who wouldn't be put down. She became compelling to a range of constituencies, some feminists, some black nationalists, some uh, on, on the left, um, all coalescing around uh, a reconsideration of who she was. So as you're speaking about this renaissance of, of Winnie Mandela, this new moment um, where a new generation of South Africans are looking at the work that she's done, her philosophy, um, and also questioning the legacy of um, all of the, the freedom struggle and the negotiated settlement. I'm wondering um, what questions you're left with. So you have gone through this long process of writing a book that will be coming out in 2023. Um, some of the archives that you've been to and the, the materials that you have offer just really unprecedented, at least for me, glimpse into this, this relationship between the two. And I'm wondering from your kind of expert opinion, um, what are some of the questions that are still on your mind, things that you are mulling over? Um, you know, if you could, I guess, have dinner once with Nelson and Winnie together, what would you ask them to tie up some loose ends, to put it that way? Well, I, I, I kind of feel that looking at the archive tells me things that they wouldn't tell me <laughs> over dinner. <laughs> um, you, you, you know, one, they may have become estranged, they may have gone in, in different political directions, but, but they were the same in many ways. And, and, and one was that they were consummate performers um, and, and they were both incredibly skilled at hiding what was going on in their hearts. And, and I think what's true of both of them and immensely sad, almost tragic, is that from a fairly early age, they threw themselves at the struggle against apartheid, all of themselves. And I think that really, fundamentally, both were broken by that struggle. They both suffered more than, than human beings can bear. And yet they absolutely knew that their lives were exemplary, uh, that they had created a myth and that that myth couldn't be shattered even if they were. 
and they understood how to keep projecting myths, um, not in order to lie, but in order to protect their own people, uh, because their mythology just wasn't about themselves, it was about a nation and about a struggle. And, and so I'm left with a sense of two people hurting beyond description, um, in a sense, two fairly tragic figures who, who nonetheless kept a very non-tragic myth alive uh, because it was their vocation to do so. Um, and that juxtaposition really, really strikes me and, and leaves me feeling immensely sympathetic to both of them. This, you know, last question actually reminded me um, of one of the probably most interesting things and most, um, one of the things that made me the most sad reading about Nelson Mandela was um, the instructions for his funeral plans. And I was wondering if you could speak um, a bit about that. Yeah, so these, these were instructions that actually didn't see the light of day and that weren't followed. Um, interestingly, he wrote them in 1996 when he was the president of South Africa and still had many years to live. And it's interesting that he was thinking about his death at that time. And essentially he said that he wanted to be buried as a simple man from the village of Kunu in the Transkei um, in a pine box. Uh, the, the preacher should be whoever the local preacher happened to be at the time there should be no car taking the uh, the coffin to the funeral. It should be, you know, carried or drawn by an ox or a horse. Um, and then at the end, he very movingly says, "You know, you won't want to bury this me this way. You will want a big state funeral, but you'll understand that this is the only way I can sleep in peace." And and essentially, he was saying, "You know, I understand that I am a myth. I understand that I self-consciously made myself a myth, but it isn't me." Um, I am I am something else. I am a uh, an ordinary man from Kunu, um, and that that was very moving because I, I think that's genuinely true. That most people who become world famous um, find it very difficult to separate the myth of who they are as a celebrity from who they are as a human being. And I, I think in the end, at a deep personal level, his celebrity meant very little to him. Uh, and he was able to separate uh, the myth of himself from his human self all the time with quite a lot of clarity. Wow, that is both heart-wrenching and, you know, gives you a really deep look into some of the inner struggles of these huge, larger-than-life figures and um, some of the tensions within them, what they were expected to be, what they had to be or felt that they had to be for their nation. And you know, who they were inside and what was what felt most natural to them. So Johnny, thank you so much, Dr. Steinberg. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to meet with me for doing this wonderful interview. It's been a real pleasure to talk about really this whole list of questions of, um, you know, things that I mull over things that, you know, keep me looking into these kinds of literature and archives. So thank you so much, Johnny. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed that. Thanks so much. This has been Afrofiles. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, Charlotte Bidnarski. Our editor is Ed Hendrickson. Our theme music is from Risen.